Kathy, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. It's awesome to have you along for the ride. And I just need to make a quick public service announcement to all of the guys, and I count myself among our amazingly often unprepared brotherhood. We only have six more shopping days until Christmas, okay? So y'all know what you need to do, okay? And, and all the mall people know we're coming because we walk in and we don't know where anything is. We haven't been there since last year at this week. Anyway, uh, as many of you know, we are in the middle of a series we've called Seasons that's going to take us right up through this coming Saturday when we'll gather for Christmas Eve. And in this series, we're exploring five of the annual feasts that God gave to ancient Israel in order to help them remember times that he had met with them in incredibly special ways. Um, and the feasts were described in the third book in the Old Testament. It's a document called Leviticus, which has derailed many of our attempts to read the Bible in a year, let's just be honest. But here are the feasts they describe in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, Passover, first fruits. Pentecost, Yom Kippur, and Tabernacles. And uh, now, and I mentioned this in a few weeks ago, but if you weren't with us, um, it would be fair to ask why, um, as most of us are not Jewish, we would care about the feasts of ancient Israel. And if that's what you're thinking, then you should know that the reason that Christians have historically found the Jewish feast so fascinating is that the Hebrew word translated feast is the word mikra, and mikra can also be translated rehearsal. In other words, the Jewish holiday season is marked by celebrations designed not only to remind God's people of what he had done for them, like in their past, but also to point them forward to something that he would one day do, as it turns out, not just for them, but for the whole world. And in fact, this idea is affirmed by an early pastor named Paul so in a letter to non-Jewish Christians living in Greece who were facing tension from Jewish Christians because they were choosing not to celebrate the Jewish feasts, check out what Paul wrote. He said to these non-Jewish believers, he said, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He goes on, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. Past tense, the reality, he says, however, is present tense found in Christ. In other words, Paul writes to these early non-Jewish Christians that in a very real sense, Jesus was the fulfillment of the feasts of Israel. In fact, they had been pointing to him all along. And so consequently, and I love this, the Jewish feast actually predicted aspects of Jesus' life and identity and mission like hundreds of years before he was born in a little town called Bethlehem, right. So, okay, with our time together this morning, I want to show you how Jesus fulfilled a Jewish feast that, honestly, I don't think many of you know much about. Um, it's called Yom Kippur, or in English, the Day of Atonement. And it takes place on the 11th day of the Jewish New Year, and the Jewish New Year is generally sometime during the month of September. Now, the Day of Atonement is the culmination of 10 days of intense soul-searching on the part of of the people of Israel. Like they would take 10 days at the beginning of the Jewish New Year to reflect on their need to be forgiven of their sins. And so imagine it like for the first 10 days of the New Year, they fast and they pray and they reflect in order to identify the areas in their lives where they aren't living as God would want them to live, which let's be honest, would be a pretty depressing exercise, right? Like I'm not gonna, you know, suggest that we start the New Year that way, but 
Uh, it'd be depressing except for the promise that God had made to the children of Israel about the Day of Atonement. And so the instructions concerning the Day of Atonement are detailed in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, and they center on the actions of a dude named the Jewish High Priest. And I found a really cool 3D rendering of one on the interweb this week, so check this out. Isn't that amazing? It looks like an action figure. I was like, can I get that for my kids? That would be awesome. Like, what are you playing with? Is that Spider-Man? Oh, no, that's a Jewish High Priest, right? And by the way, I found this, and I just was overwhelmed once again with thankfulness for Al Gore for inventing the internet. Are you with me on this? Yeah, I mean, in the 1980s, what would a pastor do if he wanted to find an image like this? It would have been impossible. But anyway, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was charged with representing the people of Israel before God by entering the holiest place on earth. And that to the Jewish people was the innermost room of the temple building on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem, sort of that back end of that structure. It was called the Most Holy Place. So the high priest would enter on this one day a year and ask God to forgive the sins of the entire nation of Israel. And I'm telling you, it's almost impossible to overstate the significance of this feast in ancient times. I mean, in Jesus' day, scholars estimate that literally tens of thousands of Jewish people would gather on the Temple Mount to witness firsthand the moment when the high priest entered the presence of God on their behalf to ask God to forgive their sins. It would have been a sacred, holy, an incredibly memorable occasion. In fact, and I love this, as I was preparing this week, I found an eyewitness account of someone who had actually visited the feast in ancient times. Yeah, it was a guy, by, it was, it's in a document called A Letter to Aristius, and it was written on 150 years before the time of Jesus. The author describes the Day of Atonement this way. Check this out. He writes, it was an occasion of great amazement to us when we saw the high priest engaged in his ministry and all of the glorious vestments, including the wearing of the garment with precious stones upon which he's vested. So the high priest would wear this grid of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He said, there the priest's appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. A man would think he had come out of this world and into another. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near the spectacle of what I have described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words, his very being transformed by the hallowed arrangement on every single detail. Like all that to say there was something incredibly impactful about witnessing the high priest's work on behalf of the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. Apparently, it seemed as if another realm was colliding with this one. Because from the Jews' standpoint, it was. The Jews believed that the temple in Jerusalem was the place where the line between heaven and earth was blurred. So it was a holy, holy piece of real estate. Okay, so now check out how the author of Leviticus describes the sort of the beginning of the ceremony on the Day of Atonement. So here's what he says. He says, the high priest is to offer a bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And as it turns out, he did this for a very important reason, namely that according to the Old Testament law, he had to be free from sin before entering the most holy place or he would die. 
like it was that big a deal to be ceremonially clean before entering the presence of a holy God. And given that reality, it's not surprising that the temple leadership went to great lengths to keep the high priest clean during this feast. In fact, there's even an account that I found that said they would assign someone to keep the high priest awake between the time the bull was sacrificed and the moment he entered the temple's innermost room for fear that he may fall asleep. And how do I keep this PG-13? Have an impure dream. And if you don't know what that means, you can ask your parents on the way home, right? Because that would render him unfit to enter the most holy place. Like I said, the Day of Atonement was a really big deal to the people of ancient Israel. The high priest had to be clean before entering the presence of God, and he had to enter the presence of God in order to have the sins of the nation forgiven. And so now, as it turns out, um, as the author continues to relay God's instruction concerning the feasts, things take a really unexpected turn. So the author tells us that after sacrificing a bull to atone for his sins and the sins of his family, he says the high priest is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And I know what you're thinking right now. You did not see that coming, did you? Right? But seriously, you know it's going to be a good day around here when there are two goats involved in the sermon. Am I right? And I wanted to insert a Tom Brady joke here, but I felt like some of you wouldn't get it and then it would be confusing and I'd lose you. But anyway, see, there you go. Plus, there's only one goat. We need two. All right. But um, this is kind of fun too. Um, I actually uh, found us a goat. So on Monday, I was like, wouldn't it be just absolutely amazing if I could find us a stuffed goat for the prop? But who in the world would ever make a stuffed goat? And how in the world would I ever get it to myself within 24 hours? And so I approached the, thorn of, the throne of Lord Bezos, and lo, the truck came, and we have a goat. Someone said to me, what are you going to do with the goat afterwards? I don't know yet, but I was just excited I could find one, right? Anyway, the author of Leviticus continues. He tells us, he, the high priest, is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat. He says, he shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord, a, go a goat apparently is not nicknamed Lucky, and sacrifice it for a sin offering. And you're like, okay, so far so good. Two goats. Uh, one goat is to be sacrificed to God um, as an offering for sin. And that makes sense. Um, if you read the Old Testament, you see that sort of thing over and over again. You know, blood is spilled to atone for sin. The other goat, the author tells us, well, this is where things get really interesting. So check out what happens next. So the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. So, so before we go on, some of you are like, this is the weirdest sermon I've ever heard in my life, and I love it. Yeah. Okay, so you have to imagine this scene. I can't, I can't be serious when I'm pointing the goat at you. Sorry, I'm going to put him down. Okay, I'm like, this is such a big, the goat is dead. The goat down. Okay. So just imagine this with me, tens of thousands of worshipers gathering on the Temple Mount to witness the annual ceremony during which God would forgive the sins of the people. And the high priest in that ceremony, um, the high point of that ceremony, at least from the perspective of the people who had gathered, was the goats. I mean, like the high priest brings two goats to the altar in front of the temple building and essentially rolls the dice and identifies one goat to be sacrificed and the other to be the scapegoat. That's clear enough, but you're like, I know what you're thinking, like, what exactly is a scapegoat? Well, let's keep reading. He says, when the high priest has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he's to bring forward the live goat. Now I have to pick up the goat again, so that was a brief goat respite. Okay. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it 
all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, like all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Then he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat, the author says, will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot going on in this passage, but essentially, God says to the people, I, I want the high priest to symbolically transfer all of your sins onto the scapegoat and then have someone lead the scapegoat out of the city and into the desert. And, and, and by the way, when I was preparing for today, I found an ancient Jewish source that recorded a few fascinating details surrounding the ceremony during the time of Jesus. At first, the author pointed out that at some point early in the first century, a tradition had developed in which a red cord was tied around the forehead of the scapegoat. That's not in Leviticus, but it was a tradition that developed, and it was attached before it was let out of the city. And then prior to the goat being released, the red cord was removed, returned to the temple, and hung on the altar right in front of the temple building. Then apparently, over the next year, and this I find this fascinating, the red cord would mysteriously turn white. And eyewitnesses interpreted that as a reminder that God could forgive their sins. Like it says in the Old Testament book of Psalms, though our sins are like scarlet, they will be washed white as snow. And I was just like, dude, that's really fun, right? So um, amazing what you can find in these ancient sources. The second thing that I discovered in this source was that in the time of Jesus, the man appointed to lead the scapegoat out of the city was never a Jewish person. And if you think about it, that makes sense. No Jewish person wanted that job, right? Um, and that the scapegoat, when he was let out of the city, wouldn't be just released into the wilderness. They would sort of push him off a cliff, right? Because if you think about it, you don't want this goat wandering back into town and like visiting your family barbecue. This, my friends, is a loaded goat, right? Like the sin goat, is it anybody? Like the kind of goat walks in and goes, and everybody's like, oh no, right? Yeah. So that was the second thing I found. The third thing, and I just, for the first time ever on stage, that's pretty funny. Red letter day at Keystone. Anyway, the third, and I can't, I'm going to put the goat back, sorry. I'm like, I'm just like, and then the goat, I don't know what to do with the goat. We're going to, all right, here we go. The third thing I found was that apparently after the sins of the people had been read over the scapegoat and after the red cord had been tied around his head, the people in that temple court who had gathered to witness a ceremony would begin to chant three words, like over and over and over again. They would chant, take him away. Take him away. Take him away. And the more they chanted, the louder it got. And as the scapegoat was let off the temple mount and out of view, a celebration would erupt because of what God had done for them. Like, it's pretty incredible to think about, but the ancient Jewish people, hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, actually believed that God loved them enough to transfer their sins to an innocent vessel and then to remove that vessel from their presence, to literally carry their sins away so that they would be forgiven. Like when the goat left the temple complex, they believed that their sins left with it and they were free. Isn't that an incredible demonstration of grace? 
And we have to remember the culmination of this, or the ceremony was a culmination of like 10 days of intense introspection on the part of the people. I mean, they never during a year would be more aware of their need to be forgiven or more excited by the promise that on this one day, on the Day of Atonement, God would forgive them. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the Day of Atonement follows a week and a half of intense introspection and asking really challenging questions about the state of your soul. It's a sobering exercise, but if you think about it, it's also an exercise that's drenched in hope. Because when the scapegoat is led away, the purpose of the Day of Atonement is revealed. It's all about forgiveness and freedom and deliverance. It's about knowing that your debt with God in that moment has been paid in full. And that's why this feast was such a big deal. Okay, so now before we go any farther, um, I just have to ask you something. And, 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 and if you're watching at home too, this is just something, just something to think about. Is there something that you're carrying around this morning? Like, are there sins that, if you're honest, they're weighing you down? And we're coming to the end of another year, and it's a time to reflect on sort of where you've been and all those memories and all those regrets they, they kind of come flooding back in. Things that you did maybe years ago that still haunt you, especially when you think about your relationship with God. I mean, maybe, maybe for you, like, you cheated on someone. Maybe it was decades ago. And, or, or maybe you betrayed someone. Or maybe you intentionally deceived someone and they really got hurt in the process. Or maybe you, you let somebody down. And, and though you've never really confessed it to anyone, like in the quiet moments of your life, Maybe even the week between Christmas and New Year's, you're laying in bed, you're looking at the ceiling, and you just sort of, you feel kind of stained on the inside, and you secretly wonder what God thinks about you, because, like, whatever you do, there's still this, whatever you do, like, moving forward, there's still this thing back there kind of lurking in the shadows of your mind. And, and, I, and I say that because I, I wonder, like, for you today, if it were possible would you, is there something today you would like to place on a scapegoat? And you'd like to say, God, I'm, I don't want to carry this around anymore. I want to be free. And so if you had been back then on that day, that day would have been incredible for you because you could know where you stand with God. And if you have something, if you have something this morning, I have some absolutely incredible news for you. Because as I noted at the start of this talk and every talk in this series, um, this feast was ultimately a rehearsal for something God would one day do, not just for ancient Israel, but for the whole world through Jesus. And in order to show you what I mean by that, we need to fast forward like 1,500 years or so from the time this feast was first introduced to the last day of Jesus' life. We call it Good Friday. And on that day, uh, an early Jesus follower named John described the moment when after being arrested, Jesus appeared before a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. And it's worth noting that in this moment, many, many Jewish people had turned on Jesus and were demanding that he be crucified. Uh, and he had to appear before a Roman governor because the Jewish temple leadership didn't have the authority to have anyone killed. And so they brought Jesus to the Roman governor and they demanded that Jesus be crucified. And in that moment, John tells us something that's so interesting given what we're talking about today. He says, Pilate took Jesus 
and had him flogged, just beaten within an inch of his life. It says, then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And I've read this a million times before I studied the Day of Atonement. But all of a sudden, after studying the Day of Atonement, I noticed something that I had never noticed before. Just let me just ask you a question. If you were to twist together a crown of thorns and place it around someone's head, and if those thorns were sharp enough to puncture skin, which these would have been, what would that have looked like? It'd look a little bit like a red cord tied around someone's forehead. And if you're thinking, yeah, maybe, I can see where you got that. If that's where you are, I'm skeptical, that's fair. I'm always skeptical too. Check out what happens next. Because Pilate presents a very bloody Jesus to the people. And they respond to being confronted with this bloody Jesus with three words, which they repeated a few times. Take him away. Take him away. And like all the lights on your dashboard should be blinking right now, right? Especially when you consider that after the chanting, Jesus was led out of the city of Jerusalem by a group of non-Jewish Roman soldiers, and then he was killed. Like, I'm telling you, if, if you're familiar with the Day of Atonement, and the Jewish readers of John's gospel certainly would have been, you almost can't help but to see the connections. It's like, according to John, Jesus wasn't just a scapegoat. Jesus was the scapegoat. Like, the final scapegoat, because the sins of everyone, everywhere, were placed on him. And now, after Jesus' death, there's no more need for a day of atonement because Jesus fulfilled it. In fact, he was what it had been pointing to all along. And, and, and what's fascinating to me is there's an author in the New Testament uh, wrote a book called Hebrews. It was originally a letter written to Jewish Christians. And he actually says about how Jesus fulfilled this feast when addressing a group again, of Jewish Christians. And fair warning, it's a bit longer of a section than we typically read at one time, but I want you to see the overwhelming, undeniable connections that the author draws between Jesus and the Day of Atonement. So here's what he writes. He says, but when Christ came as high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect temple. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And then check out what he says next. He says the law, speaking of the Old Testament law, the Levitical law, the feasts and all of it, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. It's like, again, they're, they're pointing to him all along. He says, for this reason, the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, he asks, would they not have stopped being offered? In other words, the Day of Atonement had to happen every year because people kept sinning. And there's almost this sense, like, inherent in the law, man, couldn't there be a bigger, better sacrifice that actually fixed the problem of sin once and for all. And the author of Hebrews would say, yes, there not only could there be, there was, and his name is Jesus. He says, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty 
for their sins. He says, but those guilty before God, right? I mean, when we sin, there's consequences among other people, absolutely. But as far as God is concerned, he's like, this, this is not supposed to be a part of your experience. He says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Like every year, every year you reflect and you identify those areas where you're out of bounds with regards to what God wants you to live. And every year there's an atonement. And he says, you know, those sacrifices, they had to happen every year because... People kept sinning. And then now just check out one more passage. This is so amazing. He says, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Not ultimately, but he says, but when this priest, speaking of Jesus, when this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, check this out. He sat down at the right hand of God. Fascinating detail. You know what there aren't in the temple in Jerusalem? Seats. Because the priest's work was never done. They would walk in, they would do their work, and they would walk out. Maybe they could lean on a wall, to be fair. But there wasn't a chair anywhere. But he says, when this priest, when this priest accomplished his work, he sat down because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who were being made holy. Perfect forever those who are being made holy. I'm telling you, it is almost impossible to overstate the implications of what happened when Jesus died on the cross and atoned for the sins of the world. That was the real day of atonement, by the way. And just thinking about it, what it means is that if you have placed your sins on Jesus, God's scapegoat, when he looks at you, he doesn't see sinner. He sees someone who has been completely forgiven of their sins, washed in the blood of Jesus. Someone who can live free from fear of judgment from God because, again, Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice that covers all the sins of God's people. And by the way, this is, this hits on one of my passion areas, this is what makes Christianity so different than every other religious system. Like when I, when I talk to people, especially young people, a lot of times they're like, well, aren't they all kind of the same, all the religions? And they have a lot in common, to be fair. You know, give, serve, forgive, that sort of thing. It's good. But I said there is something that makes Christianity unique on the world stage. Because if you think about it, in every other religious system, you can never really know where you stand with God. And any good works are at least in part driven by like a fear of judgment. Man, when I stand before God, I want to make sure I have enough good to outweigh the bad that I've done. So if you say, you know, what are the, what are the things that mark religion? Fear and insecurity. But see, someone who believes in Jesus can know that their sins are forgiven because it isn't up to them to pay for them. And by the way, that's why we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. And I'm telling you, my friends, that is really incredible news. In the ancient world, they called it good news. That's where we get the word gospel. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the next time someone suggests to you that all religions are the same, would you please just do me a favor? And tell them about the goat. <laughs> because they're not all the same. And okay, before I, I let you go, there's something else that I discovered about the Day of Atonement that I wasn't sure where to put it in the notes, but it's just so good I have to share it, so just please indulge me. Um, the same ancient Jewish source that alerted me to the tradition of the red cord 
um, that was placed around the forehead of the scapegoat also recorded something. Check this out. The author wrote, in later times, the change, as in the chord, to white was not invariable. In other words, it didn't happen all the time. And he says, a proof of the people's moral and spiritual deterioration that was gradually on the increase until 40 years before the destruction of the second temple when the changing of color was no longer observed. In other words, around 40 years before the destruction of the Jewish temple, Rome came through from the north and leveled it, and that was in 70 AD, the cord stopped changing from red to white. They still did the, they still did the whole ceremony, but the cord remained red. Implication, something changed. And the authors attribute that something to the moral and spiritual deterioration of the people. But as a follower of Jesus, I would suggest to you that there's another far better explanation. Because sometime around the year 30 AD, 40 years or so before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, a man who I believe to be the son of God hung on a cross and shortly before dismissing his spirit, he said, it is finished because he fulfilled the day of atonement. And so after his death, it was no longer necessary because again, with his blood, he atoned for the sins of the world once and for all. And now all that remains for any of us is to place our sins on God's scapegoat and to say, I want to be rescued. I want the blood of Jesus to cover me. And I'm telling you, the moment that we do that, the moment that we believe, we can live free from the fear that God will punish us for our sins. That stuff that's lurking back there that just leaves us with so much regret. And I'm telling you, that, my friends, is the best news in the history of history. Okay, so we'll leave it there and we'll pick up the conversation about seasons on Saturday. Three options, 2, 3.30, and 5. We would love to see you here. We'll lift our voices. And then there's one more feast that I want to unpack with you, and it's a feast called Tabernacles. So uh, with that, I'd love to invite you to stand. And once again this week, if you've come into this place and you'd just like someone to pray with you or to talk with you, we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left right after um, I dismiss. But for the rest of us, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we stand in awe of your plan. We thank you for the way you revealed in those feasts what you would one day accomplish through your son. And we praise you and we thank you that he can be our scapegoat today and that we can know where we stand with you. I pray that this week we would have a renewed sense of that freedom, that you love us and there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. And so we bless you this morning. We thank you. And I ask for your grace and your peace to be on us all as we approach the day when we remember that light was born in darkness and forever was changed. It is in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, we pray and everyone said.
Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you on Saturday.